Do you remember uh, when you were in school, do you remember uh, sitting in school, maybe struggling to grasp something that the teacher was saying? Do you remember thinking to yourself, when am I ever going to use this stuff? You ever say that? I, I, re I remember uh, sophomore year geometry, so 16-year-old me was sitting in class, and my teacher was going through proofs in geometry. Do you remember doing proofs in geometry? Now, I know now that those were developing some, some, some logical reasoning skills, but boy, to 16-year-old me, I sat there thinking, there's got to be something more useful we can be doing as Mr. Smith went line by line through those things. When am I ever going to use this? And that didn't stop in high school either. In college, uh, I, I got a degree to teach uh, history and English, and for the English side of that, I had to take a class called the History of the English Language, and it was just about where language itself came from, and especially the English language, and man, what a trip. Uh, like the second day of class, Dr. McCran, our professor, he was... Uh, talking about where sounds come from in the body. This is what we were doing. How our mouths and throats and diaphragms uh, work together to, to make sounds. And we were practicing these things. He was going, he was asking us to participate. Ah, ah. And people in, in the class were going, eh, eh, ah. And he's like, no, uh, raise your soft palate. You know, ah, ah. And I was looking around in this classroom full of mostly grown people were making goat noises. And I was just looking around thinking, I am paying for this. What is even happening right now? There's no way what is happening right now is going to help me teach someone to read and write at a later date. But there we were. Now I know um, I spent a dozen years as a teacher in public schools, and I am a proponent of a well-rounded education for all kids. And, and sometimes, kids, the answer, like I told my youngest recently, sometimes uh, you're going to use this, you need to know this, because you need to pass this class. And sometimes that's enough. But uh, if, if I'm going to be completely honest, and since I'm preaching right now, being completely honest is probably the best idea. But if I'm going to be honest, occasionally when you are reading the Bible... You can say to yourself, am I really going to use this? Do I really need to know this? If you've ever done a Bible reading plan where you try to read through the Bible in, in a year or in a couple of years, uh, Genesis is great, Exodus is great, and then you get to about chapter 25 of Exodus, and you think, well, man, I don't, there wasn't much going on there, and so you persevere through chapter 26, and it was kind of the same, and so then maybe you... you turn forward in your Bible and you learn the last 16 chapters of Exodus are like a giant blueprint for building the tabernacle. And if you persevere, persevere through that, your reward is you get to start Leviticus. And, and don't get me wrong, we can learn some fantastic truths in those passages. that They point to Jesus in remarkable ways. But those truths aren't that self-evident. Self and it's pretty easy and reading those passages to think, you know, when am I ever going to use this? How is this going to affect me? Well, I don't want to scare you off this morning, but we're about to read our passage. Uh, it's only four verses in, in Romans chapter 4. 
but they can seem like we have veered into when are we ever going to use this territory. Everything we've read in Romans so far, I think it's been, it's been very like uh, foundational to our faith, and, and I think it's been riveting, but you know, I'm, I'm, the Bible's kind of my thing. But then today, Paul's going to bring up Abraham's circumcision again, which is not a great topic to think about, and the timing of that, and how, um, how the timing of Abraham's circumcision can somehow make him our, our father, and it can seem kind of weird and kind of hard to understand, and it can seem like we have veered into, when am I ever going to use this territory? But as I studied these verses, uh, I found that they were pretty practical as far as they speak to us where the rubber meets the road in what we do in church. They speak to us, Paul's talking to us about the relationship between our justification, when God deems us to be legally righteous in his heavenly courtroom. This passage speaks to the relationship between that, our justification, and the rituals that God prescribes that we do. So that's where we're going to go. Let's read our passage today, this morning. It should be on your screen, Romans chapter 4. We're going to read verses 9 through 12, and they read this way. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While Abraham was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. I want to start this morning by just telling you the main idea right from the beginning. I've got to scoot my screen over so you can see all that. The main idea of Paul's, of Paul's passage this morning is this. There are no rituals required for justification before God. That's, what Paul, that's Paul's main idea in this passage this morning. As we dig through this, that's what we're going to see is his main idea. And I just want you to, to notice that, to know that right from the jump, because this can be a little bit difficult to, to bring the main idea out of. That's where, that's where we're going. There are no religious things you or I have to do before we can be justified before God. There are, uh, there are no religious rituals without which, like if we haven't done this one or that one, we're not okay with God. Um, nothing like that. There are no rituals that are required for justification before God. Paul's been teaching about how people are justified. I mean, we should sort of already know this because Paul has been teaching the main idea of the book of Romans is that salvation, justification before God, comes by faith alone. It's a gift of God's grace that God gives to those who believe. And the main idea, early in the books, Paul said that the only way God will point his power at people in a way where they are saved instead of condemned 
is through the gospel. And Paul taught the gospel in, in, in Romans 3, 21, and then following, uh, to those who need it. Before sharing the gospel, Paul told us we all need it. There's none of us who are righteous based on our own behavior. If we stand before God, simply hoping we were good enough to be accepted by God, we're going to be in real trouble. We're going to be, Paul says twice, without excuse before God. Nobody's going to stand before God and be able to offer an excuse. Well, God, I didn't know. Um, nobody told me this or, or, or that. Um, I won't re-preach those sermons, but no one will stand before God and hear God say, uh, you are, are good enough based on the way you lived your life to enter into eternal life. But the good news is, the gospel is, that God has done something that allows people, ungodly people, sinners, to be counted, judged, deemed righteous before God. That is the good news. That is the gospel. God did that at the cross. Um, that's why Paul said, no one can boast in our position before God because none of us have done anything to make ourselves righteous before God. We've been given a free gift of righteousness that God promises to give to all those who believe in what Jesus did at the cross. He was paying the punishment your sins deserve, my sins deserve. We believe in that. God gives us a free gift of being legally righteous before God. That's the only way any of us will be counted righteous by God is if we come to believe in Jesus Christ and what he did at the cross. Now, I know that can sound too good to be true. I know the, the, the main objection to the gospel goes something like this. That sounds too easy. Like, I don't have to do anything for God to count me among the righteous. I only believe it can't be that easy. Always remember... The answer to that objection is, it wasn't easy. Your salvation wasn't easy at all. It wasn't easy for God to give his one and only son and watch him suffer and die at God's own hands. God the Father put his son to death when his son had done nothing wrong. The reason God did that is because someone had to pay for your sin and my sin. It was either him or it was us. It wasn't easy for the Lord Jesus to, to hang on the cross, to be humiliated. It wasn't easy for him to bear our sin in his body on the cross and, and to suffer under the wrath all of our sins deserve. That wasn't easy at all. Yeah, but, someone might say, it's too easy for me. It couldn't be that easy for me that I merely believe in what God did and he counts me righteous. Well, the answer to that is this. Your salvation isn't about you. It's about God. It's what Paul uh, taught us in, in Romans 3, 25 and 26. That the cross was God demonstrating his righteousness. You being counted righteous to God. Christianity is not about you proving to God that you are good enough for him to accept. The cross was where God proved that he was good enough. He was righteous enough to punish sin because he's just, but to also forgive sinners because he's merciful. And so we should already know that faith alone, a free gift alone, is the only way anyone is counted righteous before God. The gospel, though, has always been difficult for people to believe because we want to earn our keep. 
We want to deserve our place before God. But Paul said last week in the passage we studied, our main verse, Romans 4, 5, that uh, the one who does not work, this is on your screen, the one who does not work, but believes in the God who declares ungodly or wicked people to be righteous, that kind of faith is credited to people as righteousness. So really, before we get to this passage, we should know there's nothing I can do to make myself justified, not guilty before God. There's no religious thing. There's no behavioral thing. We should already know, but Paul, because he knows, he's heard all of the arguments against the gospel in his career as a missionary. He's heard them all, and as he sits down to write this letter to the Romans, he anticipates uh, their, their objections. And so today, he, th- he anticipates somebody saying to Paul, there has to be certain religious things people must do before they can be okay with God, acceptable to God, righteous before God. And so here's what Paul's going to do. He pulls uh, the example of Abraham's circumcision out as sort of our test case and example in today's passage. And he's going to use circumcision not because it is an example of a religious ritual. It is the foundational religious ritual of the people of Israel. And, and Abraham is, is the father of the Israeli people. And so Paul's test is sort of this. If Abraham's circumcision had anything to do with his faith, then religious rituals probably have something to do with our justification. I'm sorry I said that wrong. Abraham's circumcision did have something to do with his faith, but not his justification. If, if Abraham's circumcision had something to do with him being justified if it caused him to be justified, then, then you and I probably have things we have to do to be justified. But if Abraham was justified apart from that ritual, then that means we can be justified before God apart from rituals also. That's why Paul asks this question in verse 9. It's on the bottom of your screen. Is this blessedness, then, for people who are circumcised or also for people who are uncircumcised or is is this blessing, and he says what the blessing is in the end of the verse. Faith being credited to people as righteousness. People being justified. Does that happen only for people who obey the religious rituals of the law, of the nation of Israel? Is it only for people who go through those rituals or uh, for others as well? And Paul's going to answer that question first in verse 10 by kind of saying this. Let's check the timing. Let's check when Abraham was credited as being righteous by God and compare that to when Abraham was commanded to be circumcised by God. And if Abraham was was justified before he went through any religious rituals like circumcision, then then that means he was justified apart from any religious rituals. And that is the, the course, the path for us as well. Paul says this in verse 10, How then was faith credited to Abraham? Was he circumcised when he was counted righteous by God or not? And then Paul answers the question, No, he was not circumcised. He was uncircumcised. I won't tell you the whole story this morning. I'll give you the Cliff's Notes version. But on the screen there in the picture, 
There's a verse Paul quoted last week. Abraham believed God, and that faith was credited to Abraham as if it were a lifetime of righteousness. That was in Genesis chapter 15. If we would go back into uh, Abraham's story in the book of Genesis, we would find, we would read that God commanded Abraham to be circumcised in Genesis 17, two chapters later. And in some stories in the Bible, two chapters can be the same day, but not in Abraham's story. Uh, Genesis 17 happened 29 years after Genesis 15, which means for basically three decades, Abraham was justified before God. The gavel in God's courtroom had hit the bench, and he had been declared not guilty, righteous, good enough to be acceptable to God. Abraham carried around that declaration from God for 30 years before he went through the prescribed religious ritual of, of Israel, and that was circumcision. He was, so the very first guy God ever told to be circumcised was already justified because of his faith when he was circumcised. So, what was circumcision for? If it had nothing to do with Abraham like gaining eternal life, being justified before God, what was it for? Well, Paul tells us in verse 11, the first part of verse 11, Abraham's circumcision served two purposes. It was a sign, and it was a seal. Verse 11 says this, And he, that's Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith, or because he believed, while he was still uncircumcised. He was, he was righteous by faith before this. But God asked him to do this religious thing as a sign and a seal. This sign was, it was an outward sign that Abraham had previously believed and been counted righteous. And Paul calls, Paul calls it a seal. And that word seal is used differently in Paul's day than it is in our day. Uh, first, Paul wasn't talking about a furry sea mammal, that kind of seal. Um, when you and I use the word seal, we are normally talking about an airtight seal. Like when we put leftovers in the fridge, we want a, a container that seals, that's airtight. That's, that's not what Paul is talking about. A seal in Paul's day was a sign of ownership. Um, uh, like if I uh, sent you, if we were lived in the first century and I sent you a message in a scroll, it's wrapped up like this, and along that opening, if I dripped some, some hot wax on that opening to hold it shut, I would then put something in that wax that is kind of like what we would call a brand that would identify me to you. And so when you got this scroll, that seal, that wax seal would let you know that it's from me um, and that, it, that, it, that this had not been opened, that seal had not been broken. It was a, it was a mark of ownership um, and, and security. And, and Paul says that's what Abraham's circumcision was. It was a mark that he was already owned by God. Now, we have to take a small rabbit trail um, because it's important to note that circumcision became something different for the rest of the nation of Israel than it was for Abraham. 
and we know that because of the picture on the screen there, most of the people in ancient Israel um, were not believers when they were circumcised. They were, they were baby boys. Here's where that came from. Uh, God made some promises to Abraham. If we go back into Genesis 12, um, two of the things God promised Abraham was this. You're going to have lots of descendants, enough to become their own nation. And from that distinct people group, from that nation, which became Israel, God said, I'm going to bless all of the families of the earth. Once God made those promises, God was obligated to keep them. God had to keep Israel a distinct people group because he had promised to bring uh, the Messiah, the Christ, the blessing for all the families of the earth through Abraham's descendants. So that ancient people group we call Israel had to remain a distinct people group. And that's very different from most ancient people groups. Um, most people groups on earth today, um, we wouldn't consider ancient people groups. Like we in America, we're just kind of mutts. We're this polyglot mass of uh, uh, genetic soup. Uh, most uh, people groups on earth today are, wouldn't be considered ancient people groups. Most of the ancient people groups in, 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 in uh, Abraham's day are just, have just been lost to history. Most of the ancient peoples that did survive survived because they were isolated or just massively huge. Like uh, China's an ancient people group, and they're, they're massively huge and somewhat isolated. But most people groups that survive today from ancient times, like the Japanese, uh, they're isolated. It's an island. Uh, the the, um, the uh, American Indians or North American uh, native tribes from way up north, they were isolated. They have survived. The India is an ancient people group. Uh, they were uh, isolated uh, by the ocean on three sides and the Himalayas uh, on the top. Well, uh, Israel survived as a people group, not because they were isolated. Israel is in what's always been an extremely busy part of the world. Most of the ancient people groups from that part of the world have just you know, melded into other uh, civilizations. But God promised. That's why Israel has survived as a people group. Because God promised. And part of him keeping that promise is God built into the law of Israel some things that kept them distinct and sort of made them weird to other people. God commanded Israel, you're going to follow this law. It's going to make you distinct. And other people could always join Israel, but they had to join Israel. Israel could not join other people groups because God promised they were going to be distinct. Um, some of the, the commandments were, that's why God made it to where Israel couldn't just intermarry and go be a part of another people group, not because God was racist or thought Israel was superior. He had promised to bring the Messiah from this people. And so God said, among other things, Israel, you're going to circumcise your babies Here's some really weird food laws that don't make a lot of sense, honestly. And you can't work on Saturdays. You have to take Saturdays off. Those three things made Israel very different from other ancient people groups and, and kind of strange and made people kind of be like, no, no thanks. Uh, also, you can only worship one God and, and there's some, some uh, seemingly strange ways to worship him and, and, and people weren't sort of about that. So God built 
those things into the law of Israel to keep Israel this distinct people group. And so circumcision under the law became a sign that we are a part. This family is a part of Israel, a part of the people of God. Abraham's was different. Abraham's circumcision was a sign that he had believed and he was justified before God. And in those two things, by the way, we can see two different traditions of how baptism is used in the New Testament church. Uh, our church, um, does we see baptism in the New Testament as done to people who have already believed. It's like Abraham's circumcision. Like Paul discusses here, we baptize people as a sign and a seal that they have already believed and been justified by God. That's how Abraham is our father, Paul says here. Some of our more uh, Reformed churches, they, they baptize infants more like circumcision was used in Israel to identify that we are, this is, we are the part of the new family of God, the church, and we're going to raise this child in that tradition. And I, I don't have too much problem with that. Um, until baptism is taught as something that helps justify people before God. Something someone does, that if someone is baptized, that means uh, they're going to gain eternal life because of something they have done. Um, I disagree with that. I believe God has done everything it takes to save people. God did not need anything we do to save us. Um, God merely... Uh, requires that we believe, which is a non-action. So, back to our passage today. Um, Abraham's circumcision happened because he already believed, he was already justified, and that is why Paul says what he says next, the second half of verse 11, which is on your screen. So, Abraham received that sign of circumcision as a seal, a mark of ownership of the righteousness that he already had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. Why? So that, Paul says, Abraham would become the father of all of those who believe but have never been circumcised. That they too could have righteousness credited to them. Who are all of these people that uh, believe but have never been under the law that requires circumcision? That's, that's us Gentiles. That's us barbarians, Paul calls us in another, earlier in the book of Romans. Abraham, Paul said, became our father by being justified by faith. Now, how can Abraham be said to be my father, your father, if we are not of Israeli descent? I want to give you another example that illustrates that. Who is the man that is normally called the father of our country? The father of the United States. That's George Washington. Uh, is George Washington called then our father because we are genetically descended from George Washington? No, none of us are. He didn't have any biological kids. But George Washington can still be called, rightly, the father of our country because he established the pattern that led to the United States becoming what it became. Here's how, after the American Revolution, here's the things George Washington had going for him. He was uber uh, popular and uber famous. He was uber rich and he was uber powerful. He had control of both the government of this new country and the military of that new country. And in all of human history, you know what people who had those things going for them had always done? 
they had made themselves king or queen. And the people under them were okay with it. If you're that popular and that famous and you have that much power, people were, that's just the way the world worked. But George Washington did something different. He had all that going for him, but he limited his own power. He gave up control, power, authority, submitted himself to this constitutional form of government. Uh, then, he, then he refused to serve longer than eight years as our country's president. Uh, because that's what he wanted this country to be, he and others. That's why he's called the father of our country. He established the pattern that, for how this country would, would, would be run. Paul says Abraham is our father in a little bit that way. We're not genetically related to Abraham. But Abraham believed and was justified by God before he had done any religious stuff. And Paul says here, that's how Abraham is our father. When we believe, and Paul will tell us later, we must believe in, in the cross of Jesus Christ. So the content of our faith is different than the content of Abraham's faith. We'll talk more about faith like Abraham in a couple of weeks. But when we believe in Jesus and the cross, we become justified by God before we have done any religious things. And that's how Abraham can be our father. Paul ends this passage by saying that, uh, verse 12, Abraham's also the father of the circumcised, of those of Jewish descent, those who grew up under the law. But in the fullest sense, the only Jews who are have Abraham as their father in the fullest sense of that word are those who are not only circumcised and lived under the law or come from families who practice circumcision, uh, girls are included too, but also those who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham possessed when he was still uncircumcised. For Paul is saying, Jewish people, those of Israeli descent, if you want to rightly and fully call Abraham your father, don't be satisfied just being a, a, a biological descendant and and doing the traditional uh, things of the law that Jews do, you have to have the kind of faith that Abraham had before he did any religious things. And that's how Jews can be fully children of Abraham. That's why Jesus could look at Jews and say, Abraham's not your father. Because they didn't have, they didn't believe in the promises of God the way Abraham had believed in the promises of God. And we know now those promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the passage. That's how um, Paul taught that there are no works, even religious works, religious rituals that people must do before they can be justified before God. That's how Paul argued all that. But this leaves us with some important questions about how we do church here in the New Testament. So what would Paul say about the rituals we still do? Are we wrong for doing religious rituals? What about um, baptism, uh, the Lord's Supper or communion or, or whatever you call it? Uh, what about um, you know, membership classes or confirmation classes or um, what about fasting during Lent, like many people are doing right now? Which ones of those are necessary? 
in order for, for someone like me or you to be justified before God, for God to count us as righteous, righteous enough to inherit eternal life, which ones of those religious rituals or rites must we have done before we can be justified before God? Based on today's passage, how do you think Paul would answer that question? Paul's whole point is Abraham was justified before he did any of them. And he is supposed to be our father. That's the kind of faith we are supposed to have. Faith in the God who makes the wicked righteous before we do any kind of religious rituals. That's the pattern. So the answer is there, there are no religious rituals that are required for our eternal life. So the next question becomes, so why do we do any of them? Some of you maybe have thought of this objection. Like, well, wait a minute, Maxwell, your church does religious rituals. We do certain ceremonies. Why do you do them if none of them are requirements for justification? Well, I'll answer that this way. There are lots of things we're commanded to do, lots of things we should do that are not the difference between heaven and hell, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do them. If I were at the grocery store and uh, the, the person carrying their, their basket around like, stumbled and dumped their groceries out all over the floor and the oranges rolled this way and the cans rolled that way, none of us would say that if I don't help that person pick those things up, I'm going to hell when I die. None of us would say that. But should I help them? Of course. There are lots of things we should do. There's lots of things God commands us to do. But none of those things play a role in our justification before God, which is a free gift given to those who believe in Jesus. That's important to remember. It's important to remember that my justification is based on what do I believe about Jesus. Here's why. It's really easy to attend church to sit in church and to go through religious rituals and think, I am going to be okay with God because my parents drug me to church and I had this religious thing done to me and I went through these classes or I, I was bad, whatever it is. It's easy to put my trust in the things I have done or have had done to me and think that's why I'm going to get to eternal life. When Paul would say, Justification before God is by faith alone. So what do you believe about Jesus? So our church, we, we find in the, the Bible two, um, what we call ordinances, two rituals uh, that are commanded in the scriptures. Baptism and what we call the Lord's Supper or, or Communion. But those are things like Abraham's circumcision. Those are things that justified people do as a sign and a seal of our justification. These are not things we do to get ourselves justified before God. We don't do them until we are justified before God. Um, now there are other religious rituals that we are free to do. Uh, we do baby dedications. Uh, where that's where uh, uh, parents will bring their child to, to dedicate themselves as parents and dedicate this child 
uh, to the Lord, like I want to raise this child in the fear and admonition of the Lord with the church's help. Uh, we're free to do that religious ritual, though we're not commanded to in the scriptures. Fasting is another one that's obviously biblical, um, but we're not commanded uh, to do it. So, but our two ordinances, we do see in scripture, we are commanded to do baptism and to do the Lord's Supper. And they're a sign, and they're a seal. I would compare them somewhat to, I wear around uh, on my body a sign and a seal of a ritual I went through. You can see it here. This is my wedding ring. Uh, I'm married to a lovely uh, lady named Rachel, and Rachel gave me this ring at our wedding. I don't know if you've noticed, I haven't been wearing that ring, and I'm just as married whether I'm, whether I'm wearing it or not. In fact, if, if I had been allergic to gold or something, or if I worked in a, in a field where it was dangerous for me to wear a ring, if I had, for whatever reason, decided not to wear a ring, I would still be just as married to Rachel, whether I wore the ring or not. I choose to wear the ring because it is a, it's a reminder to me and it's a sign to everyone else that I don't belong only to me. I also belong to Rachel. It's a sign. It's a seal. That's what baptism and the Lord's Supper are in the New Testament. Um, our conclusion to this sermon was supposed to be nine baptisms. We were going to have those in our sanctuary or auditorium or whatever we call it. Uh, at the conclusion to this service, I've met with these nine people and I've heard testimony of their faith. They believe that Jesus died under the wrath of God. Their sins deserved. Jesus took their place. They, and by their faith, they're justified already. And they're going to be baptized as a sign to other people that they, want, that they are identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why baptism is done by immersion. It symbolizes the death and burial and resurrection of Christ which we share in because of our justification. And baptism is an important symbol. It's the prescribed, the commanded symbol for that. And the Lord's Supper, communion, is, is a sign and a seal that, that is more for me than it is for other people. It's more of a private reminder. Jesus said, as often as we do communion, we're to remember him. We take that bread, which Jesus said symbolizes his body, and when we break it, we're reminding ourselves of the tremendous price that was paid for our redemption, our justification. When we drink the cup, we're reminded of the blood that was shed so that we can live. And when we put those things inside of us, we are reminding ourselves of that, of our mark of ownership, of whose we are, who, pay, who bought us, and at what price. Uh, I would love, I, I wish right now, we were doing uh, baptism, uh, and someday we will, when the coronavirus thing uh, allows, uh, we'll do that, and I hope you are here for that. But I want to ask you just as we close, what is it you trust in for your justification before God? Is it the religious rituals you have done or that have been done to you? Or is it simply that you believe that what Jesus did at the cross, he was doing in your place. Because justification, according to Paul, and the rest of the New Testament, 
is a gift that God gives to those who believe that Jesus paid the price their sins deserve. Pray with me and we'll, we'll close our time together. Father God, I thank you so much for the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, it is so gracious and so amazing Sometimes it's hard to believe. We, we, some, we want to do something. We want to be able to point to something we have done to, to make ourselves acceptable to you. But you've told us in your word that there's nothing we can do. We are without excuse. We are unrighteous. But you demonstrated your righteousness to judge our sin at the cross and to save unworthy sinners like us. God, I pray you'd lead us to, whether it's baptism or the Lord's Supper, to, to do those not as a way to try to be uh, acceptable in your sight, but as a way to remember uh, and to demonstrate the seal of our faith. And God, if there are people tuned in today who have never understood uh, that gospel, I pray you'd lead them to just uh, tell you, Lord, that they believe that Jesus paid it all he suffered every bit of wrath uh, your justice deserved on their behalf. And I thank you for the promise that by believing, each of us can be justified before you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.